Last week, uh, my family was out. We were traveling. We took a, a trip to Yellowstone National Park and then to Grand Tetons National Park. It's the first full-length, kind of week-long vacation Laura and I have taken with the kids since our oldest was born. And so we enjoyed that time to see some of the beauties of creation. I wonder if you've ever seen Yellowstone National Park or the Tetons. Those are like five and six hours, respectively, away from here. Short drive. You could leave in the morning and be there in time for lunch and see some glorious things. It was cool not only for me to get to experience those. I'd been to both of those parks before, but they were new and fresh for my children. And Laura had never been to Yellowstone. The Yellowstone National Park is known, as some of you would probably know, for its 10,000 geothermal features. That's geysers and hot springs and uh, mud pools. It's built on top of a, a, a basically an underground volcano, more or less, that causes all these things to come on up. And more than 4 million visitors a year, that's almost four times the number of people live in this valley, flood in and out of Yellowstone National Park in order to see these beauties. Wouldn't be surprising if what might come to your mind would be, be a, an image of Old Faithful on a picture or a bumper sticker, or maybe if you had a chance to see it with your own eyes, that giant geyser that can shoot 185 feet into the air. And that's, that, that, that is towered over by the larger spring nearby, Steamboat Spring, which can shoot 400 feet into the air when it erupts. These features are amazing. You get to see these things. I, I got to stand there with my kids as I showed them a, the Grand Prismatic Spring. It's this giant pool of water, boiling hot water, that is uh, about a football field's width. And as you look into it, the most notable feature about it, besides the, the steaming water, the steam kind of rising off of it, is the fact that it is a rainbow in color. My kids are all into rainbows these days. And so I got to tell them, we're going to see a rainbow pool. A what? They said. And it was one of those few th- times, I think, that, that they weren't under-impressed by what they saw. It was, it was this deep blue in the middle. And as you get to the ring of it, go ahead and Google this when you get home. Grand Prismatic Spring, or just, just Rainbow Spring Yellowstone, if you forget the name of it when you get home. And you'll see it's, it's like a rainbow. The, the colors are vibrant and brilliant. They really do look that way. I told my kids, that's where unicorns are born. I say out of places like that. It looked amazing to us. And this feature is something that people come from all around the world to see, and rightly so. It's It's glorious. We got to see Yellowstone Falls. It's two times taller than the Niagara Falls. Stood underneath it, his watch is just the flow of it was so pounding, so hammering, that in a single second, one second, the flow of water that goes over the lip of those falls could be more water than the average human consumes in a lifetime. One second. And guess what? It's doing it right now. And now. And now, while we're sitting here. And for every minute of your life. Not only that, but we had to stop our car multiple times. If you've ever been through Yellowstone, you might know this, because there are giant animals walking around like they own the place. You'd stop and sit there. What's going on up there? We, we got four we, elk and bison. We, 100 bison were crossing the road at one point. We had to st- stop and, and just watch these bison. There's amazing, giant, behemoth creatures. You ever seen a bison? You ever seen one up close where it's about to hit your car? It's like literally, you can reach out and touch it. Literally, outside of your car as you're driving by, it just looks at you. It tastes good too. We had to trick my kids into eating buffalo sausage because they were afraid. I don't want to eat that. I'm like, no, just, just try this thing. It's really good. They go, what is that? Buffalo. What? Hundreds of these things. All, we saw eagles more than we could count. Elk more than we could count. Moose we saw out there. We saw all these beautiful sights. And then, then after all of these grand parts of this giant national park that's larger than the two smallest states combined. It's enormous. We drove south about an hour to get to Grand Tetons National Park. I wonder if you've seen that. People have called them the Alps of the Rockies because they they literally just jut straight up out of the valley floor in these commanding peaks. It's impossible for you to drive by and not look at them. 
I wonder if you've ever been to Jackson Hole or to, to, to see the Tetons. If you're, if you're on the, the main road that passes right in front of the Tetons, you can't miss it. If no one drives by and goes, I, I, didn't, I don't know where the Tetons were. If it was a clear day, there's no question. You drive by. And, and if you look out your car window as you're driving this road that runs parallel to the mountain range, if you look out the western side, you see these, I mean, breathtaking mountains. Do you know what's out the other side? No one knows because they don't look. You're so distracted by this, you don't even think to look the other way. It's, it's commanding. And people can literally go there and just stand and just stand there and look. And they look. And they stay. And they don't go anywhere. I bet that there are people in this room who have seen far more beautiful sights than Yellowstone and the Tetons. I bet there are people in here who have seen better beauties than America's national parks. I bet you've seen other places in the world, physical features that have been just awe-inspiring. They could go, how did this get here? A lot of people love the mountains. We love the mountains. We love living here to see the mountains every day. We love going to national parks nearby to see these sights up close. We love looking up into the sky at night in the dark and seeing the stars just glistening. We, I know many of you do. In fact, it's almost like there's something wrong with the person who doesn't, right? Do you know what I mean? Does anybody ever go like, ah, get me out of this stinking fresh air? Does anybody ever say, ah, these dumb stars, why are they brightening up the sky? Ah, these mountains are so boring. If somebody were to say that, what would everybody else around do? What's wrong with you? It's like a person says, I hate puppies. You're like, what's wrong with that person? Why? Because it's intrinsic. You can tell just standing there, there's something majestic about it. You're little, it's big. And there's more, more of this than you will ever be able to see. There's more of this that's not even on the maps out there where people can't walk or drive or travel. And that's just this earth. That's just this world. That's just this planet. If you could have all of that, if you could have all of that beautiful sight every turn you make, you don't, you don't turn away from the beauty to then go find another one, you turn from one to see another one immediately. If you can have that on and on and on and on, the greatest beauty that the mountains could offer, the hills, the, the rivers and ocean's depths, the starlit skies, if you could have all the beauties of the world and somehow have all of that beauty with none of the rot and the decay None of the suffering and the trials of the world. None of even the death. And if you could have all of that, which the world is looking for all the time. You go to these national parks, you find, you find, you find tourists who are paying big bucks to go see these places. And you're seeing more locals who just love, are infatuated with nature and the mountains. And you and I can't help but see there is something worthy of looking at. When we see these things, if you could have all of that good and none of the bad without Jesus, would you want it? I'm offering an impossible hypothetical, but play the game with me. If you could have all of that good, your greatest vacation your most relaxing trip, the most beautiful places you've ever experienced, if you could have all the best of creation with none of the depravity, with none of the corruption, without Jesus, would you want it? Your flesh does. Your flesh would say yes to that. Your flesh desires the things of creation more than the creator who made them. Your flesh desires the things you can see more than the things you cannot see. We just sang earlier in the service the song, Take the world, but give me Jesus. Do you feel that way? Do you believe those words? When you sing those words, do you say, yes, I could have written that. I don't care about the mountains or the, or the beauties of the landscape. I don't care about creation if I get Jesus.
There are two reasons why you might not be able to sing that song and mean it. There are two reasons why that song might not be able to ring true for you. Number one, because you're not a Christian. That's the first reason. If you're not a Christian, every bit of you will say, I want the world more than Jesus. Every bit. There's not an ounce in you that would prefer Jesus to the world if you're not a believer. If you have not been born again, made alive in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, awakened to the reality of the Creator's love for you, you will not be able to sing that song and mean it. It'll it'll be meaningless to you. It'll be a lie out of your lips. But you might be a Christian who has a hard time singing those things if, if you've let the things of the world distract you from the beauty of Christ. If like on that road past the Teton, something over here happened to take your eyes away from the majesty of those kinds of mountains and you, you don't want to look at them, you want to look at this. If something has distracted you. And I know that for many believers, we've had days, weeks, seasons of life where we struggle with that. Something's taking my attention away. That's why the whole New Testament is written over and over again to encourage Christians to be stirred up by way of reminder. Remember what you've already known to be true. Look back to Jesus. You need to be reminded again to turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I have a monumental task in front of me this morning in that my hope is to help you break your gaze from creation and fixate your eyes on the Savior, the Creator, the Creator of that creation. I'm going to pray, then read the text this morning. Let's pray. Lord, my words are powerless to help if they do not align with your truth. Lord, all I have to offer as a sinful, fallen man is your word. Bind me to it. Father, I pray that this Bible, that the text we're about to read, will serve to break what has distracted us or could distract us or is waiting to distract us And help us have our eyes turned back to our creator. And we ask you to do that as you always have. By the means that you always have through your word. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. If you have your Bibles go to Hebrews 1. I'm just going to read through Hebrews 1. It's pretty short. You see the flow again. Because we've been here for a number of weeks. And it could be easy for us to just zoom in so far. That we neglect to remember the big picture of what's taking place. Let's just read Hebrews 1. If you have your Bibles go ahead and flip your pages there. Open your phones. Go to it. I'm going to have two passages I'm going to want you to go to today and look at with me. Hebrews 1 is the first. Hebrews 1 is the first place. Next one's in Psalm. We'll get there in a little bit. I'm going to want you to look at these words with me, okay? First, Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. 
And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Last time we were here, I told you that the author is making one central claim by using several supporting points drawn from the Old Testament. The central claim that he's making in chapter 1 is that the Messiah, as testified in the Old Testament, is greater than the angels. So his, his main claim is, look, the Old Testament says the Messiah is greater than angels. He's not just claiming it for himself. He is claiming it. But he's saying, look, even your Hebrew Old Testament scriptures tell us the Messiah is greater than the angels. Now, I'll brief something for you. There was a tradition floating around in the days of Jesus and in the days this was written where Jews had expected, some Jews had expected the Messiah would be equal to angels. That actually was floating around out there. But he's making a major point to show us that the Old Testament tells us that the Messiah will be greater than the angels. Those of the Qumran community, it seems very likely, those, those by the, who, found the, you know, who kept and preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls that we found in the early 1950s, that, that community... It seems by some of the writings, they thought that the Messiah was going to be equal to the angels. Maybe in some cases, depending on the language, maybe subservient to angels somehow. And this author goes, no, the Old Testament always told us that the Messiah will come and he will be greater than the angels. Read your Bibles and see this. And the author makes four points supported by the Old Testament. I introduced this a couple weeks ago. Uh, I think that there are four points that support that claim that he's, he's better than the angels. The first point that was stated in verse 5 is that the Messiah is uniquely called Son. The angels aren't called the Son like that. The second point was in verse 6, that the Messiah receives worship from the angels. That's the point. The angels worship. The Messiah receives that worship. The Messiah does not give worship to angels. He receives it from angels. That was the second point. Today, we're going to look at the third supporting point for that claim that Jesus is greater than the angels. And we're going to cover more verses today than we have in the past, quite simply because this is the number of verses that this author uses to make, I think, that one point. That's why we're covering more. So let's look back again at verses 7 through 12, which I think is the summary of point number three in his argument. What is different in the Old Testament between Jesus, Messiah, and the angels? This is what he says. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. I'm going to pause right there. That's verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, real quick, because I can't not do this. I'm going to give you a quick bonus point. It's not part of the sermon. It's not, it's not really uh, the main point of this text. But I feel like I would, it would be a pity for us to miss this for a moment. He's about to cite three different psalms. Just like he's already cited a couple by this point. And each time he cites these psalms, he says something significant. Here's the question for you real quick. Who wrote each psalm? You don't, you don't have to know that. I'm just telling you. Maybe David. Some of them were specified. Others are not specified. We're uncertain. But here's what we do know for certain. A man. Some guy wrote each of those psalms. But this author attributes those words to God. Just follow the pronouns. Follow the pronouns back up to verse 5. God said, God said these words. Insert Old Testament. You see that little bonus point I'm trying to give you? We ought never have a lower view of Scripture than the New Testament authors had of the Old. The theology chat on WhatsApp this week was especially vibrant. You'd be busy for a couple hours, look down, and 75 missed (laughs) messages. You look down, one of the conversations went on about Jesus' words in John chapter 3 and where do we put the quotation marks for those things. And it was cool to see the robust conversation. I think it was uh, Andrew and, and Brandon who both made a comment kind of like, 
Whether or not you put the quotation marks here or here and what specific words for of Jesus, all of them are inspired by him. <laughs> it was awesome. Who wrote the Bible? God did through human authors. Sorry, bonus point. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, what point does the author intend to make about angels? Remember, his point is to contrast. Look what it says about angels and look what it says about the Messiah. And look at how it's different. So what's he saying about angels here that's going to help him prove his point? That's going to help him support his claim? Is it the word winds? He makes his angels winds. Is it the word ministers? That's servants. That's assistants or attendants. Is it the flame of fire kind of language? The changing, changeableness, perhaps, of flames of fire? You know, both of those things would be certainly true, wouldn't they? All three of those things I just said. Them being like winds, commanded by God to go do something, is different than of the creator himself. Them being ministers, servants, that would be different. I actually think they're going to make that point. We'll get there next week. I think that's the fourth point he tries to make, is that they're servants. Both those things I think are true, but I don't think that's the point the author is trying to make here now with this text. I think that the key word here is the word make. And that the author intends primarily to show from these three Old Testament passages he's about to cite that the angels are made, but Jesus is unmade. So here's how how I'm going to try to prove this to you. I want to take a look back at that psalm. We're just going to read through it. It's only 35 verses long. He is citing Psalm 104. Go to Psalm 104. I'm just going to read it out loud. Kind of quickly, I want you to keep in mind, big picture, what is being said in this psalm that the author might recall to memory, aha, that's a passage to use. That's one to go to. Psalm 104. Verse 4 is the one he actually specifically cites, okay? That's the one he, he cites. But consider the whole passage. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds on his chariot. His, his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it would never be mo- should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, in them the the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. 
who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Blessed, bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Amen. What is this psalm getting at? This is a creation psalm. This is a psalm that celebrates the creative majesty of God. The word make used multiple times here is the word for cause or create. It's the same word make that we see the root of utilized in other places to refer to God making man in his own image. He commands Noah to make an ark. He commands his people to not make any carved images. This is the make language being utilized. I think Psalm 104, 24, verse 24 there, I think is a good summary verse, the point of the whole Psalm itself. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom. You made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. You see all the things God makes here? He makes the moon. He makes the night and the darkness. He makes the mountains. He makes the animals. He makes the sea. He makes the angels. I think this is why this author has this psalm in mind. That the spirit inspires him to go to this psalm. I'm trying to make the case that angels are made. Bam! Psalm 104. He makes everything for its purpose. Creation is utterly dependent upon him. So question, why are the angels like winds, servants, flaming fire? Why? Because God made them that way. That's why. Now, if this is the point that he makes by citing Psalm 104, if I'm correct in my assertion that the point he's trying to make, this third point is that angels are made, Jesus is not made. If that's his point, then what we should expect in the following citations, two more he quotes from Psalms, we should expect is to see that Jesus is the creator. I think that's exactly what we see. Hebrews 1, verses 8 through 9. But of the Son, as opposed to the angels, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Here he cites Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And I want you to notice at least two critical points being made with this citation. First, the sun is forever. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's the first thing. Angels aren't forever and ever. You are forever and ever. They're winds. Winds have a starting point and an end. They didn't exist at one point and they were made. Fire starts and goes out. It didn't exist and then it was made. But you, of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. First point on this, I think, is that the sun is forever. The second is that the sun is is God. The psalmist here calls two people God. Notice this. He calls two people God. But of the Son, author knows that the, uh, the Old Testament psalmist has in mind the Son when he writes the words of God. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That part of this is mind-blowing to the Hebrew who does not yet know Jesus. Wait, what? In evangelism, occasionally, when we share a verse with somebody that so clearly contradicts their personal view, it is not uncommon for a person to go, wait, it doesn't say that. No, and they, they look with you at yours, what version is that? What translation? Well, it, it just says that. Any translation you want. Look, it just says this. Scratch their head. Because how can that fit if I believe something different? I think a Hebrew who did not yet believe in Jesus might do that same thing. No, 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 no. The Psalms don't say that God, your God. No, it doesn't say that. Oh, my goodness. It does. Have you ever heard the term progressive revelation? 
heard that term? Progressive revelation. It's kind of just a theological term. We use it to refer to the way that God revealed himself more and more and more over time to his people, right? So you look back in the Old Testament, he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then on comes the scene, Moses. And then Moses needs to know who this God is. And he says, I am who I am. He reveals more about himself to him. And then in redeeming the people out of Egypt, he reveals himself as a redeemer of the people. And as he continues on into giving them a law, he's a God who cares about law and has a specific way. He means he worshiped. And the people grow in their understanding of who God is. And it isn't until the New Testament, the New Covenant day, in which it is fully and completely revealed that God in three persons has existed for all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, if you're looking for Trinity in the Bible, most of where you're going is the New Testament because that's where it's spelled out. It's why we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's why we see the whole New Testament testifying to the Godness of the Father, the Godness of the Son, the Godness of the Holy Spirit, one God. But that doesn't mean that we don't find truths planted in the Old Testament that blossom in the New. This is a seed planted in the Old Testament that points to this coming Messiah who will be God and has God. Sounds like John 1.1, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and was God. Both of those things. And it's right there in our Old Testament. It's right there in our Bible, and it always had been. Quick guardrail for you. In the first sermon on this chapter, I showed how it is that we can be confident that there is not more to be added in progressive revelation today because Jesus has finally spoken. We are not waiting for someone with more to say than Jesus. Well, Jesus had some good stuff. Maybe someone else has better. Jesus and his immediate eyewitnesses have concluded what we need to know for faith and for life, waiting for his return. But even though, as the doctrine of progressive revelation explains, we should expect to see the nature of God revealed more fully in the New Testament, we see these truths planted just like this in the old. Messiah is God, the anointed son. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed this other one who can be called God with the oil of gladness, Beyond your companions. There's been lots of debate in the years of whether or not those, other, those companions mean the angels. So that in the, in the celestial places, the sun has been, uh, been anointed with an oil beyond angelic companions in heaven. Others have thought, well, that's maybe a, a humanity statement of Jesus. Uh, he's been anointed with an oil of gladness above like other mankind, maybe. And still others see it as more just illustrative. That, that no matter how you cut it, this shows that... Jesus is not merely one among many, but that what he has is distinct and great. And the whole point of, first of Hebrews 1 is to show that he's greater than the angels, that he's not equal to them and never has been. So, so the first verse cited regarding Jesus. We already read one verse cited regarding the angels. Angels are made. He makes them. This one about Jesus shows that the Messiah is called God. And what does this forever reigning God have said true of him in the Old Testament? What does the Old Testament tell us about this God? And that's what the next citation does. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. This is cited from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And this psalm, if we were to read through this whole psalm, if time permitted, it compares the weakness of man with the greatness of God. It begins with this, oh Lord, I need your help, I'm, I'm weak. <laughs> Crying out to God in helplessness. It compares the weakness of man with the greatness of God. These verses, specifically, verses 25 through 27 of that psalm, highlight that God is the unchanging creator, altogether different than his creation. Now, now quick point. If you were to read through these psalms as I did with great scrutiny as I'm preparing for this, you might not notice anything in Psalm 102 that seems specifically to refer to the Son or the Messiah. 
uniquely, but just God generally. But what you would see is the way that the Psalms refer to God. So the author first, in his, author of Hebrews, in, in his citation of Old Testament, he's building a case, Jesus is greater than the angels. And in this point that he's trying to make, his third point here, the author first establishes that the angels are made by his first Psalm citation that we read through. Then he shows that the Son is God, the ruling creator, by the second citation. And the very God of whom the scriptures tells us made the heavens and the angels and everything in them is why he draws on the third citation, the third psalm. So all this to say, yet again, Jesus is greater than the angels. So here's here's the question. We've been in this for four or five weeks, maybe. I don't remember how many, but a handful of weeks already. And he's pounding this nail in over and over again, isn't he? Jesus is greater than the angels. Now, why would we go so slow through this? Who here would struggle with that statement that Jesus is greater than the angels? And did, I try to imagine who I might be preaching to on a Sunday. Did anyone walk in here today thinking, maybe the angels are greater than Jesus? That you would need this special encouragement? I suspect not. That doesn't mean that error is not out there. It is definitely out there. I don't suspect that the the regular attenders and the members and those who research our website to come and visit, I don't suspect that they're walking in the doors thinking that Jesus is less than the angels, needing us to remind them that Jesus is greater. But let, let me state the error another way and see if we might be able to mine out why this truth needs to be clear for us. Let me say it this way. Not Jesus is greater than angels. Check, Rich, got that. The creator is greater than creation. The creator is greater than creation. Now, who might practically struggle with that? All of you. Every one. Every person who ever has and ever will enter through those doors. Any person who ever has or ever will get into this tank and get baptized. Any person who ever has or will stand here to preach for you struggles with that. With acknowledging, knowing, realizing, reveling in every minute of every day that the creator is greater than all the rest of this. If you value the things of this earth more than Jesus, you need these kinds of verses. We don't just go, those foolish people, they thought Jesus was less than angels. Press it in. What dominates your mind? What seizes control of your heart? At what? Do you aim your greatest affections all the minutes of your days? What do you want more, God or his stuff? Everything that exists falls in one of these two categories. You know this. We did this earlier when we talked about Jesus being the creator of how many things? All things. There are things made and things unmade. Things Unmade is way easier to talk about because all we have to say is God and the list is done. But things made is everything else. This is one of the most fundamental differences between Christians and everyone else. We worship what is not created. Did you ever think of this? Every other person on this planet who is by nature a worshiper adorer of something, lover of something, and of the somethings, something is most. That's worship. Christians are the only ones who put in that category of highest affections, praise, adoration, worship, creator rather than creation. Everyone who worships a false god worships creation 
things under God. Everyone who is an atheist and basically worships self. They're not an atheist. They believe they're God. Every atheist worships self. They're in creation. You and I have been rescued out of that folly to worship creator. And you and I can only set our life's direction on pursuing one as our greatest treasure. Creator or creation. I may not know you all this morning. I know I don't. And I'm not a prophet nor the son of one. I can't foretell what's happening tomorrow in your day or this next week. But I, I can know something for certain about you. This next week, what I'm talking about here will be your greatest struggle. Loving God's stuff more than him. And when I say stuff, I, remember, I'm saying all creation. That means your job. That means your career, your bank account, your calendar, your schedule. Time is under God. Time is created. That, that, means, that means loving self. That means other people in your life that you may sacrificially love. Anything that you love more than the creator. Anything that takes attention and affection from the creator and points it down to creation. That will be your greatest struggle this week. I guarantee it. Every morning. It might be the self. You might wake up, look in your mirror and basically never leave. Because you're struggling through pride and selfishness and me, me, me. Maybe you're seeking the acclaim and the praise and the applause of man. You want what they say more than what he says. All of us are going to struggle with this this week. We're going to struggle and be lied to. We may believe the lies that the creation is more valuable than the creator. Do you know what Jesus said about this? There are many places throughout the whole of Scripture that we could point to. Let me point you to one place, what Jesus said regarding this idea, Matthew 10, 37 through 39. Heartbreakingly real passage. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you were to say to Jesus, Jesus, I want you, but I want my stuff more. Jesus would say, no deal. You can have me or that. As our greatest affection, there can only be one. In fact, what is sanctification? Growth, spiritual growth in the Christian life. What is sanctification but a lifelong battle to see Jesus as more and everything else as less? That's what it is. That's what every day of sanctification in your life is to see your circumstances as less and God as more. That's what it is. In fact, when you fail to do that, will be the greatest failures of your life. Trace for yourself in your mind. What are the greatest failings? What are the things that I would be the most ashamed of as a believer? It's because somehow, in some moment, you loved creation more than creator. Do you know why this battle will be so hard? Do you know how I can say this is so certain for us? For one reason, because you're surrounded by it all day, every day. In fact, everything that you can see is creation. You're swimming in it. You are it. Aren't we? Some of you are going to be a mom this week. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to be a mom. You're going to have to get up and you're going to have to plan things for the family. You're going to have to drive the kids somewhere and drop them off. For the little ones, you're going to have to change diapers and you're going to have to get them dressed and bathe them and feed them. And there's so many things you're going to have to do. And you're going to, listen, you need to do that. You need to devote your attention to that in the moment. You need to prepare it for that. You need to do that well and right. Some of you are going to go to work this week. You're going to spend 40 to 70, maybe plus hours this next week at work doing labor to put food on the table, to fulfill responsibilities that you've made to accomplish things. You're going to be surrounded by creation all week long. You can't avoid it. And if you look for the, to, the, to the world, 
For help on this, you're not going to find it. Do you know what the world loves most? Itself. You need God. You need his words. You need to hear the words of the creator who speaks into creation. You must see Jesus as the greatest treasure. Greater than life. Greater than anything in creation. Jesus died for the sins of everyone who will ever believe in him. Including the sin of loving his stuff more than him. Do you know that? That you are a sinner? That because of your love for creation, you are under God's just wrath and punishment? You deserve separation from God for forever. Do you know what you deserve? Do you know what you deserve to get? Do you know what I deserve to get? Exactly what we want most. The great, amazing reality of what the Bible teaches as true is you will get in eternity whatever you want most. Do you want creator most? Or do you want creation most? That's what you're going to get. If you live your life rejecting Christ to the end, wanting what he has made more than him, you'll get it. You'll get what he made for eternity and you will not have him. But if you set your sights on him, if you acknowledge your sin in loving the stuff, Repent of that sin. Turn to him. And daily in your battles, spiritual battles every day of your life. Let me see you more. Let me see you clear, Lord. Help me. I'm I'm being distracted. Help me look to you. You'll get him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Your sin deserves a punishment. And God sent his son, this Messiah, the one who said that, Matthew 10... And the one of whom these psalms are pointing to and the author of Hebrews is infatuated with died for you. For all who will ever believe that you can have an eternity in heaven with the creator forever. Turn from creation. Turn to the creator and be saved. One thing that my family does when we're on trips together Anything more than half an hour, we put on uh, audiobooks. It's like magical what it does to the kids in the back seat. They just lock in and listen. And we listen to the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia for the umpteenth time through again. Probably my favorite book of those Chronicles of Narnia is A Horse and His Boy. If you know anything about the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll know that our beloved Christian brother, C.S. Lewis, wrote these chronicles and used as a main character in them, a lion named Aslan, who unquestionably is the creator, the Messiah, the son of God. That's like how he's referred to throughout all this. He's Jesus. He's a picture and illustration of Jesus through all the books in the Chronicles of Narnia. And in A Horse and His Boy, two of the main characters are talking horses from Narnia. One who says that he's heard the stories about this lion Aslan and thinks they're all myths. And the other who says that she has also heard the stories of this lion Aslan, and while she's not seen him, and her belief is tentative, she does believe he must exist. And one of my favorite scenes that makes me love my brother C.S. Lewis so much for writing these kinds of things in is at the end of the book, It's not a spoiler. It's been around for 50 years. That's your problem, not mine. (laughs) Is that at the end of the book, this mare, this this horse, Huynh, sees Aslan, the lion. He shows up. And this this is what it says about this encounter. Then Huynh, though shaking all over, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the lion. Please, she said, You're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. That's how I want you to see Jesus. I'd rather be devoured, consumed by you than given any other good thing from anyone else. 
I want you to see Jesus as he really is. Our holy God. The creator of the angels. With a beauty that demands praise. Behold our God. Let's pray. Lord, verses, words, guide us to see you more clearly. Father, I pray that this week, as we are all waging a war in our lives to turn more from distractions to the Creator, God, I pray that you would do things in our lives that would break our trust in creation, even if that is painful, and that would help us to build our trust and confidence and love in you, our Creator. Father, all that needs to be done for that is for you to show us yourself more clearly. You don't need to change into anything you aren't. You don't need to pretend. You don't need to put on a show. You don't need to reveal a hidden talent. You just need to be who you are and let us see you. Father, I pray that this week that we would see you. We would see you. We would see you. And I pray that the things that are not you would be shown to be you. Father, I know there are good things in this earth that could steal our attention from you and become bad things. It is good for us to labor hard and when we're at work to give our attention to what we do in your name. Father, I know that it is good for fathers to be daddies and to wrestle with their kids and and for older kids to talk with their kids and care for them and pastor their kids. It is good for moms to mother their their children and to to care for them in a motherly way, to to put the band-aids on their scraped knees, to help them with their homework, to talk with them about the things that they're struggling with. Lord, help us do those things but in such a way that they are in sight of you rather than turning from the sight of you. Father, as always, preaching is an impossible task apart from the Holy Spirit. This cannot happen unless you send your spirit into our hearts to awaken us to the presence of God every moment. You have to do that for us, Lord. We beg of you, please, that we may give you more worship and praise. Help us to fixate our eyes upon you, our holy God. Help us see the beauty that demands praise. Help us to behold you, your Son, and your Holy Spirit this week. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.